Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Alex Glukowski, CEO of Matter Labs and one of the creators of the ZK Sync Network. In this episode, we catch up about all things ZK Sync. The last time he was on the show was over two years ago, and so there was a lot to talk about. We cover the ZK Stack framework, hyperchains, the ZK Credo mission statement, and the Bujam proof system upgrade planned for ZK Sync era. We also chat about the future of the project and more. Now, before we kick off, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Launching soon, Namada's a proof-of-stake L1 blockchain focused on multi-chain asset-agnostic privacy via a unified set. Namada is natively interoperable with fast finality chains via IBC and with Ethereum using a trust-minimized bridge. Any compatible assets from these ecosystems, whether fungible or non-fungible, can join Namada's unified shielded set effectively erasing the fragmentation of privacy sets that has limited multi-chain privacy guarantees in the past. By remaining within the shielded set, users can utilize shielded actions to engage privately with applications on various chains, including Ethereum, Osmosis, and Celestia, that are not natively private. Nomada's unique incentivization is embodied in its shielded set rewards. These rewards function as a bootstrapping tool, rewarding multi-chain users who enhance the overall privacy of Nomada participants. Follow Namada on Twitter, at Namada, for more information, and join the community on Discord, discord.gg forward slash Namada. And now, here's our episode. Today, I'm here with Alex Glukowski, the CEO and one of the co-founders of Matter Labs, as well as the creator of the ZK Sync Network. Welcome back, Alex. Hi, Anna. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here again. Now, Alex, this is the fourth time you're on the show, and I'm going to be adding links to the previous episodes. I'm also going to be referencing them quite a bit because I had a chance to listen back. One quick disclosure, the ZK Validator is an investor in ZK Sync. I think this was actually one of our first investments. We mentioned it on our last episode because I think we had done it around that time. But I'm very excited to learn about what's happened since. So that earlier episode was from April 2021. At the time, I was very excited to be using ZK Sync because it was the first time that I got to use a rollup. It was through the Gitcoin grants where they had actually just enabled the option to use ZK Sync instead of mainnet to do your donations. And as a recipient of these grants, I also, you know, was getting grants on ZK Sync. And yeah, I just remember being so excited about being, having a chance to use a rollup at all. But I know that since then, so much has happened. Can you share, I mean, it's, it, I know there's a lot to cover, but can you share in a nutshell what's happened in the last two years with ZK Sync? Absolutely, with pleasure. So the ZK Sync network that you've been using back then is now known as ZK Sync Lite. Uh, we, we've, it was the first protocol that we developed and uh, launched on uh, the mainnet. It was a simple protocol for sending tokens and, and later uh, token swap was, uh, were added to this. And, and that you used it at Gitcoin Crans also captures a very important aspect of what ZK Sync is all about. So ZK Sync is not really a specific network or a specific, like just the name of the protocol. It's the name of the project. It's the name of a bigger vision. Mm. And this has been the vision 
of the project since the very beginning, since the inception, we've always been very deeply focused on this on this core mission, and we've been very consistent about it. And it's all about scaling crypto to everyone in the world without losing the properties that make crypto valuable in the first place. The decentralization, self-custody, security, permissionlessness, you know, this inclusiveness where anyone can participate no matter what without asking anyone for permission to join. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had that in the beginning. And it was also very, very clear that in order to fulfill this mission, we have to make it very nice and user-friendly and convenient. And, and I think this was the experience that was very impressive back then with Gitcoin grants, because you could do just one click in MetaMask and the system would process dozens of transactions to different uh, recipients of the grants. Uh, and it felt like magic. And this is part and part what ZK is all about. It's the, the magic moon math, which adds magic to blockchain applications and scales it too. It is funny, though, that like back then that was very user friendly, but it was such a novel way of think like MetaMask before that point, you would never choose networks. You wouldn't actually make distinction. I mean, there was only one network you, you were usually working on. And I remember there was a learning curve even back then. Nowadays, though, I feel like a lot of that has become people are quite used to it. And actually, I think that conversation about like usability, I want to come back to that later on, because as much as I feel like the goal is usable usability, getting there still is at times very challenging. I feel a lot of users, even today, even with easier tools, are still having a hard time getting into it. So let's come back to that. I do want to say, you know, you mentioned that from the very start, you were focused on the scaling of blockchains. And in, I think, our first interview, we talked about how a lot of your team and a lot of the founders of ZK Sync were coming from the plasma world, had moved over into rollups. At what point did the idea of the ZK EVM really come into your mind? Was it already back then that that was the goal of using ZK? Or was it like, Instead of Plasma, we're going to use ZK rollups. And then eventually this idea dawned on, on you that you could actually create an environment where people could deploy apps the way they do on mainnet Ethereum on an actual ZK rollup. Uh, this vision was there from the very beginning. It was very obvious really? that the end game has to be full scalability. You knew it was going to be ZK EVM. If, if you read the very first blog post introducing ZK Sync, for the, for the, where we mentioned ZK Sync for the very first time, and, and it was close to five years ago. It's called the introduction of ZK Sync. Uh, one of the points that we make there is that eventually we envision full EVM bytecodes being executable and provable internal knowledge proofs. Uh, the, the distinction from where we are today and where we were back then is it became feasible. It was not feasible five years ago, and it was not really clear how specifically we're going to manage that. It was clear that eventually it will come. We needed um, breakthroughs in the protocol development in, in, in the fundamental crypto primitives of zero knowledge proofs. And those breakthroughs eventually came in the form of Plonk, recursive Plonk, Redshift, and then the, the systems that Cambrian exploded after that uh, so that we can finally have performance high enough to, to process essentially ZKVM level computation 
And this is what happened since the last time we spoke. We launched the ZKVMs on Ethereum, and they are now live and flourishing. And ZKSync era was the the first blockchain L2 where you could deploy Ethereum contracts without modifications and just let them uh, work in exactly the same way the users interact with uh, Ethereum mainnet or with optimistic rollups, which were live earlier. And now it's a uh, we're still at the beginning of a long journey to make it universally available and universally usable. Mm. I want to ask you about, given that I feel like the audience now knows much more about the EVM, ZK EVM space and the different kinds of ZK EVMs, I, I, I know a few years ago or maybe a year ago, Vitalik published this like ZK EVM landscape with these different types. I'm curious, where does ZK Sync fall? Yes, ZK Sync era and ZK Stack, the, the technology that, that we currently have, still falls under type four, uh, meaning you have to compile your contracts and deploy them in this network. Uh, but these borders are blurring eventually. I think we will have systems that will support different types of virtual machines in the near future where it will not really matter. You will be able to execute any types of um, programming environments from EVM native bytecode to something that is natively compiled for this system for maximum performance to something like RISC-V uh, or VASM or other types of virtual machines with different bytecodes. Uh, all of that will live together and will cooperate with different trade-offs for different purposes. Mm -hmm. That is definitely where ZKSync is heading and everyone is heading. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the launch of the ZK EVM. This was the second network ZK era. What was that like? And actually, when did it launch? Was it a year ago? That was in February this year. Uh, it was very exciting. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that you could deploy EVM contracts with exact same invariance, exact same interfaces, same user experience on a ZK rollup. So it was obviously a very a moment of high responsibility because we were thinking a lot about security, about different ways the system can break. We were putting a lot of precaution measures in there. Uh, and so it was a mix of this responsibility and alertness and actual excitement for going live. Uh, and we absolutely did not anticipate such a fast pace of uh, onboarding users and, and capital and, and applications. Yeah. We thought it's going to be a lot smoother and a lot longer for people to gain trust in the system. And gradually, uh, over time, um, things will start moving, but it was like like a snowball. Yeah. It was really, really fast. I want to ask you, though, because I remember this was um, Lisbon 2021. Do you remember this? We like caught a cab to a, mm -hmm. a dinner. We happened to uh, be in the same place. And I got a chance to talk to you then about this launch. And you had set like a date. Like you'd put a line in the sand in the future. And you're like, we will be launching there. And I remember it being very ambitious. What was that like behind the scenes? Like we've set the dates a couple of times. We had to postpone it because there were, you know, like you're building something completely new. Yeah. And you're you can be you cannot be focusing on on several different uh, conflicting priorities all at the same time. For us, security was paramount. So we we knew we're not going to launch something that is not meeting the standards that we expected in terms of security and diligence um, and code quality. But the moment we solved all of these issues and we we actually had a live 
testnet going on in a very stable way with uh, partners launching things working properly, we gained more and more confidence. And then we, we, we just put a line saying like specifically by this date, we will feel that the system is bottle tested enough and mature enough to be launched. Yeah. And so it was a gradual improvement from, from that point. Like we, we were just very, very conservative. We did not really did not want to rush. Yeah. So the line, the, the final line we've set was actually from a point where we were very, very confident that the system is functional. And, and this may, maybe this is why I confused it a little. I think back then you might have said something like it's coming sooner, like around November. And then I guess, is it possible that then you pushed it to February? No, no, no. We, we, I think the, the initial estimates for building ZKVM yeah. were, I think, like from, from the point uh, where we started working on it, we, we thought it could be completed in one year. It took us closer to two years. Mm. And so within this time period, I think there were a couple of points where we had to postpone. I see. It's very common to all projects. I feel like we, we do hear that often, that idea of predicting how long it's going to take. What what do you think took longer? Was it because of needing to do more audits? Maybe can you point to any like of the most complicated or challenging parts of building this? I think it was just a combination of things. I cannot single out a, a specific one thing. You know, like you start building stuff and then you do it iteratively and you discover challenges on the way. You cannot just foresee mm. all of them completely imaginary and saying, oh, here is the, the perfect system. All of the best world's products that are being shipped fast are being shipped in this cyclic way, where you make an iteration, you build, you launch your MVP, you get the feedback, you see what works, what doesn't work, what you have not thought about, and then you work over and over with further iterations too. In that time too, though, did you did you change the ZK under the hood at all? Like, was there any sort of adaptivity on the on the ZK part, or would you say like you already locked that in kind of at the beginning of that two-year process? The primitives were locked. Okay. Uh, it, what changed were uh, the circuits. We, we discovered more ways to make things more efficient. And so some of them were rewritten, but mostly it was just iterative work of building the, the complete body of uh, all components required to make a uh, complete ZK VM. But we now have a really good sense of all of these components, it turned out that a lot of complexity was not in the ZK circuits itself. And pe people overemphasize the, the, you know, like the, the complexity of zero knowledge proof specifically. There is a lot of complexity in rollups in just the platform side of things, in your core node, in scaling the, um, the storage, in scaling the uh, transaction processing, in scaling the APIs for querying transactions. So oh, like that required a lot of work. And luckily, we have a very, very talented team. And we made some right choices from the beginning, um, doing everything in Rust and using best practices from engineering to make sure that we can eventually scale with the demand, You know, like not putting any artificial limits where we say, oh, 10 transactions per second is going to be enough. And then all of a sudden, you hit this wall of 10 transactions per second. And, and then what? Are you going to shut down your chain and like invest time in, in, in making the system more scalable? That's not how you build in a sustainable way. You have to anticipate yeah. spikes in demand. You have to anticipate growth and you have to put in a lot of buffer, Yeah, actually orders of magnitude of buffer in order to be able to accommodate these unexpected black swans. And this is what the work was all about. 
That's fascinating. I, I was just in prep for this. I was actually listening to our first interview together with uh, your Alex V, who was also on that one. And, I, and he, I think you actually mentioned that thought. Like, I think he said something along the lines of like plasma was built for this kind of capacity with ZK rollups. It will be a lower capacity, but, you know, these are the trade-offs that are made. But what you're describing is like as you went on, you realized actually those spikes of usage, like you can't actually have a chain halt or not be able to use it. It's not. It may not need to maintain that capacity all the time, but it has to be able to maintain that upper boundary. So this sounds like real learning, even from that episode. What exists today? Like, what is the ZK system in ZK era today? Because I know there's something coming, but I'm curious what it is right now. As of today, on mainnet, we use Plonk with uh, recursion. Mm -hmm. What we're switching to now is uh, the uh, proof system called Buja, or yes. the implementation called Buja. Mm -hmm. uh, this is now live on testnet, and we're we're making full switch on mainnet in a couple of weeks. Oh wow! And Buja is the implementation of um, a construction we called Redshift originally. Uh, we uh, Alex V published it together with uh, Constantine and uh, Aki. Very sh shortly after Plonk was was announced, it was a an extension of Plonk, which enabled Fry to be used as polynomial commitments mm -hmm. and essentially turning Plonk into a transparent proof system. Which then, I mean, this idea was very influential in general because we've seen lots of systems since then go with that idea. We actually covered Redshift on one of the episodes we did together as well. But I remember last time we spoke, you had actually talked about shelving it. And now it sounds like you brought it back in action. What did you need to do to Redshift to get it into the state that it would be Bojum? So we postponed the Redshift implementation back then because it was not very efficient with the primitives which we were available at the time when Redshift appeared. Uh, this has changed since then with uh, a couple of breakthroughs. Okay. An important one came from the Plunky 2 team. They came up with an idea to use a shorter field in a really cool way, which boosted the performance of, of the hashing. And also uh, there were uh, a couple of other insights. There was, uh, it, I'm not the right person to, to answer this question. You should talk to Alex V, but there was something with uh, some research on, on uh, better cached quotients and multivariate lookups uh, from Ariel Gabison and, and, and a couple of other guys. Those things combined gave Bootjump the performance necessary to be able to be used in production. And you mentioned that it's coming in a few weeks. What does it mean to change out the proving system? This is what we're, we're changing the full like ZK proving system under the hood, right? Yes, we're changing the, the, the prover behind the roll-up system. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's actually relatively easy for us to do because the new prover just follows one-to-one -one okay. the block structure. So we are, we are actually running it now in parallel for all the blocks that are being produced on the system that we prove with uh, with Plonk. In parallel, we're also proving that with, with Pujam. Ah. And what we're going to do is we're going to just shift to the new prover and just drop the old one. So it's a, it's a very smooth transition. In the case of a roll-up and like sort of making that change, does the change just happen in a smart contract? Like, do you just upgrade a smart contract, basically? You essentially upgrade the verifier and you upgrade the prover that produces the, the new proofs. So one thing to mention here is it was very important to keep the proof system agnostic. So what we did is we on purpose used 
256 hash function for the Merkle trees in the in the storage so that we can um, change the you know, like we did not use Poseidon that would be depending on the field and whenever you change the field whenever you change the proof system you would have to rehash and do regenesis of the entire system which would have to be a trusted operation we did not want that so we built the system from the beginning slightly less efficient but with more future proofness if mm. you want and this is how we always approach things so this is why it's so easy for us to to make this complete switch and this is why it's going to be easy for us to switch in the future to any new innovation that might be coming and will definitely be coming in the years ahead of us uh, while preserving the system, keeping it intact with all the value and all the contracts, all the, all the state that, that is being accumulated there. Mm. What does it actually do? What does the upgrade actually do? Does it make it faster? Does it make the proofs smaller? Is it cheaper? What's the actual benefit? Uh, it's going to make the proofs more efficient meaning for the end user that the the proof generation is going to be cheaper and the uh, overall throughput of the system is going to be higher although throughput is is not really a constraint here because you can pair like zero knowledge proof generation is really well parallelizable you can you can go and add more and more machines we are running gpu provers we have optimized the bootjump gpu prover to be consumer friendly with the aim of future decentralization of the of the proving space, so we we you only need under sixteen gigabytes of RAM and then in a decent gaming GPU to be able to generate the proofs for Bujam. Mm. And so uh, eventually, yes, it, it 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 boils down to the cost. So now what, this is interesting because the cost is invisible. The cost of the proof generation, it's negligible compared to the cost of data availability. This is going to change with the usage of Validia. Uh, or hybrid systems like volitions like ZK Porter, there mm -hmm. it will make a big difference. Like today on Ethereum, the users are paying 10, 20 cents per transaction on average. So they, they don't really notice the cost because they're tiny. And Bujam makes it orders of magnitude cheaper. So you will you will eventually be able to, to have very, very cheap transactions on Validiums. Interesting. Uh, you just sort of talked about like the prover and like the actual proof creation potentially being decentralized. This is a space that I, I've at least heard people talking about for, well, publicly for a few years. I know like Mina and Alio have always talked about like these snark marketplaces, like proving marketplaces somehow. Um, I've heard of a few projects doing just that, where that's their entire business at the moment, is like developing these marketplaces for proof generation. What's your vision for that? Do you eventually see other teams or some third party creating the proofs actually in ZK Sync, like networks? Or do you all, like, would it need to come from your org? Um, so let's start with the basics. We see the decentralization of all aspects, all components of the system as an absolute non-negotiable requirement. Remember, the mission of ZKSync is to scale blockchains with preserving these core values, the core philosophy, the core valuable properties that, that we have there. These properties include decentralization, they include resilience. The only way to become resilient is, is to decentralize. Decentralization, paradoxically, is, is actually not a value itself. It's, it's a means to enable several important values. 
And it's a means to give your systems, your, your blockchain networks, credible neutrality. Like if all of the proof generation is happening on one cloud provider or just on a few big cloud providers that completely control it, then they have the, you know, the soft power of being able, like they, they can just always threaten to switch off your, your proof generation, your system, and then your blockchain just shuts down. So you will be able, you will be forced to follow whatever orders, whatever subtle uh, requirements they, they impose on you. And we want to oppose that. We want to build truly resilient systems. So you have to decentralize the sequencer, you have to decentralize the, the prover, and you have to decentralize also the development process and, and the community that watches uh, over the system and, and guards the, you know, stewards the uh, development and, and points in which direction the system should be developed further. And all of that brings us to the um, to the idea or the the document called ZK Credo, which we also published this summer. Yeah, I want to talk about ZK Credo, but right before that, I just want to ask you what your thoughts are on like the decentralized sequencer space, or maybe even the shared sequencers. As a major ZK rollup at this point, do you see yourselves working with one of those shared sequencers, or do you? imagine actually a decentralized sequencer on your side? So as I said, we definitely will have a decentralized sequencer uh, in some form. Uh, we will have many chains as a part of the bigger ZKSync ecosystem. We call them hyper chains. Uh, the priority for us in building the ZK stack that powers the hyper chains is the sovereignty of the chains, giving maximum freedom to all of these chains to, to decide their parameters to decide their structure, configuration, and so on. And this includes the, the sequencing. So uh, they will be able to choose the same decentralized sequencing approach as ZKSync era. Uh, they will be able to use centralized sequencing. They will be able to use, to opt in into shared sequencing schemes um, to go for other providers. There are a number of talented teams working on the shared sequencer design space. So like I, I think we'll see a lot of experimentation and we'll definitely see like different chains pursuing different strategies. And uh, it's not gonna be one size fits all. It's gonna be some variety, some some different trade-off space. Makes sense. Let's talk about ZK Credo. Uh, I actually found this, I wasn't sure what it was. I actually asked you before the interview, is this a mission statement? Is this a kind of guiding document? So yeah, what, what is ZK Credo? So ZK Credo is a statement. It is a statement about our mission, philosophy, and values of the ZK Sync project. It's not bringing in something new. Those are the values, whatever we articulated in uh, in the first draft of, of the ZK Credo. I, I don't think it's going to be the last draft. We, we, we have community discussing it, uh, getting involved, and it will be an evolving process. But what we set out to do is to articulate those principles in a very specific way which can serve as the basis of the formation of community of uh, ZK Sync governance because we're building systems that have to be credibly neutral uh, we are striving for using math instead of relying on humans on validators on some centralized authorities or even on decentralized groups of people because there will inevitably be some forms of uh, politics, you know, like some some slight decision making changes. Uh, so we we want to make them as neutral as as 
transparent, as immutable as, as possible. And this actually works for blockchain systems. It doesn't really work, work well for evolving those blockchain systems. We, we are not yet at the, at the point where the code can write of its own. Like the systems do not evolve by, by their own. We don't have yet artificial general intelligence, right? They are being evolved and developed by people. And those people make subtle choices which might affect entire ecosystems that might affect specific applications. It might affect specific groups of people. And so it's really, really important to have some guiding principles and, and a, a strong decentralized community that enforces those principles. So I think of blockchains, I think we have a really nice analogy in, in the real world, uh, which is called charter cities. It's this idea that you can go and create a new territory where no one lives and you just write a new rules of the game. And then whoever likes those rules can, can join, move in and start living and working there and build something interesting. And if you don't like them, you leave. And those rules can also define how the rules can be changed. And so this enables you to experiment, to, do, to go and create a lot of different communities with these different approaches to different lifestyles, different values, different governance systems. And um, the and we see this in the world of blockchains. It's a little harder to do in L2 world than in the L1 world. Because in L1s, you can easily fork a system always. Uh, in L2s, the forkability is not really possible. Like you can migrate, but you cannot really fork the assets. You mm. know, if you have some ether, it's locked in one contract, it's going to stay there. Unless the base chain is forked, which is a much bigger... Unless the base chain is forked, but then everything is, is being forked, right? Yeah. So, like, but, but even even layer one forkability has its limits. Mm -hmm. So ideally, we want to come up with a system which is uh, having some minimum common ground because blockchains are for universal coordination. So we're going to have a lot of wildly different people participating in those systems and they don't have to agree on everything. Right? We only have to agree on the consensus of the blockchain state that I own so much ETH, you own so much ETH, I send some transaction to you. You know, it's objective. Like you can believe in 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 completely different ideologies or uh, economic systems or whatever, but like we all agree on this objective consensus state. Right. So we want to come together with this minimum form of governance that that will enable us to move on, to, to iterate on the system design into the future while not scaring off some groups of these people or enabling them to, to fork away and, and have their lives if, if they want to. And so the ZK Credo is this foundational, like if you want, a declaration of independence or declaration, like, you know, declaration of, uh, of values for this digital community that will form around ZK-Sync idea. Hmm. In this case, though, using the term fork kind of is confusing because you wouldn't actually be forking any particular L2 or ZK-EVM. You'd you'd, you could create a new one, I guess is what you sort of mean, right? Like using the ZK-Stack framework and you could create a new chain. Correct. It's, it's, it's a the word itself is a little ambiguous, but let's illustrate this. So we, we're starting off with a single deployment of ZK-Sync. Let's say ZK-Sync era is, is the first hyperchain in this, this universe of interconnected hyperchains. We should talk about that separately. So now, if you like the rules of, uh, of the system, you can just move in and participate. 
the rules are built in a way that give you sovereignty. Like the the validators, the the proof generators, whoever whatever stakeholders are in the system that are necessary for operation of the system, cannot mess with your assets, cannot change the rules. They cannot uh, rewrite contracts, rewrite state, uh, or even uh, prevent you from withdrawing your assets back to Ethereum or to some other L2, right? So like the upgradability of, of the systems uh, is going to be done in a way that, that, that is giving users a lot of time to withdraw if they don't like any, any new upgrade. But if an upgrade is coming that is changing the rules of the system in a way that you don't like, there must be a way for you to withdraw. So the and like you will probably not want to withdraw to layer one because the costs of using the layer one will become prohibitively expensive with time. So everyone will be living in L2, L3s, some kind of scalability systems. That, that's Ethereum's vision of, of the future. Mm-hmm. So you will want to withdraw to a different layer two. And if you don't have any layer two that, that you see that, that is fulfilling uh, the promise uh, that, that you want, you can just take the code, fork the code, deploy an instance of this new layer two, and then invite your fellow citizens of of this network state, whoever were, were using the first L2 in the first place, to join you and say, look, there is new change that is coming. It's actually contradicting the, the values we, we stand for. Uh, we, so and it's our obligation to, to prevent that. So we should all just vote with our feet and migrate to this new fork. Yeah, it's so interesting. So it's not forking in the way that we've understood blockchains in the past, but it's it is still forking in a way, right? Because would you be able to in also maintain the state of what's like the, the existing balances on that L2 if you did that? Well, it, at the very least, you fork the code. Yeah. The forkability of the code is the very essence of uh, open source movement. Everything we do for ZK Sync is obviously full free open source for this very reason, in order to enable this workability. And then um, forking the state, yeah, you cannot fork the state, but you can migrate. And it serves the same purpose, kind of like you move away. You you, you create your own version of this universe, which you like more, mm-hmm. and you just walk there. Let's actually dive into the ZK stack, the hyperchains, because I want to understand how these chains interface and interact with one another. When you talk about walking away, I want to understand a little more what that means or if you were to yeah migrate. So ZK stack, you sort of mentioned it a few times. Is it the Cosmos SDK equivalent, the OP stack equivalent, the like this is the builder library that anyone can use to like deploy another ZK EVM, ZK sync. This is correct. I would call it a framework. Okay, a framework. Which is a ready to use system complex of code that you can deploy and start your own Hyperchain. We call mm-hmm. it hyperchains for a specific reason. The difference of a hyperchain and some random rollup is that hyperchains are hyperlinkable. Okay. We're using a technology called the hyperbridges to connect hyperchains in a very interesting way, which enables what we call surprise hyperscalability. <laughs> the ability of the system to grow indefinitely large accumulating or absorbing as many users, as many transactions as will be necessary for for the growth of of Ethereum. You want 1 million users? Sure. You want 10 million users? You can do that. Like You Mm -hmm. you just 
keep adding blockchains, keep adding the, the systems and, uh, and it just grows. And hyper bridges are uh, using the zero knowledge proofs and a specific architecture, which is a little hard to illustrate without video, uh, but it enables you to move assets from any hyperchain to any other hyperchain without friction. Hmm. Like not adding security assumptions or trust assumptions and not adding any capital cost and doing all of that very, very fast. Not adding any footprint on, on the underlying layers on, on Ethereum, for example. Is it similar at all to some of the other ZK bridge kind of technologies, like having a very compressed light client on one side, basically communicating across these two hyperchains? Is it similar to anything maybe we've already heard about on the show? Uh, this is similar, but it has a very, very big and important distinction. So let's, like, let, let's try to illustrate it. Imagine that you have two systems, two rollups on Ethereum for simplicity. And you want to move assets, you want to move native assets minted on Ethereum from one of this rollup to another. Let's call them rollup A and rollup B. Okay. So rollup A has, let's say, 100 ETH locked into it. What does it mean? It means that there is a contract on layer one that governs the treasury of rollup A, mm -hmm. and it has a balance of 100 ETH. And there is a, the, a similar contract for rollup B, also on Ethereum, which does not have this balance. Yeah. Right. So now, if you want to move the, um, to, uh, to use zero knowledge bridging to move these uh, assets from, uh, from rollup A to rollup B, you first need some way to pass a message from rollup A to rollup B in a trustless way. And you can use those ZK bridges to do this. Huh. What you do is you make some commitment in rollup A. This commitment is being propagated through Merkle trees down to Ethereum, and then it can be read by rollup B. So all of that works. So one contract from one rollup can talk to any to, to some other contract on the other rollup completely trustlessly. Hmm. So that that's all good and great. But how do we actually get the hundred ETH to move from the treasury contract A to the treasury contract B? There's no way to do it. You cannot just burn and mint it there because they, those are separate contracts, right? You have to move this ether on Ethereum itself. You cannot have the treasury contract of Rolla B go to Ethereum and yeah, tell yeah. Ethereum, mint me 100 ETH. Where from? Are you a miner? Yeah, yeah. Right? So like you need to somehow move. And, so, and this is a fundamental problem. So what you have to do in order to enable hyperbridging is you have to have all of these um, chains have a shared single contract on layer one that, that manages the treasury of all of them in a single place. Mm. And then you can use this magic ZK bridging to pass arbitrary messages between system contracts. And then the system contracts can trust each other because they all of these hyperchains have to run the exact same circuits, at least for the system contracts. Mm. So some minimum viable shared state of the circuits. And then they can mint, they can instruct the treasury to release certain amount of assets because it's coming from the system. So like it's, it's, it's a consensus of all of this hyperchain that this actually happened secured by math and cryptography. I want to just clarify it to see if I understand this, but like, so you have the two contracts that represent the two roll-ups. Mm -hmm. 
That's the original case. In this new case, is there like a third contract that manages the treasury of everyone? Or is there a joint contract that manages both of those roll-ups? There is a joint contract that manages both of these roll-ups. Really? Yes. Okay, but is, it, do they also, like, so just to, to check, though, like, is does roll-up A still have its own contract, or is it just attached to this joint contract? It can have its own contract for managing the state okay. or maybe for some other activities, but all of the assets have to be in one shared contract. Got it. I don't know how some of the other ecosystems have developed, but like, does the OP stack do something like that too? They do exactly the same thing. So we pioneered this with, with our hyperchain vision a year ago. And since then we saw the OP stack and the Polygon uh, uh, CDK embracing the same approach. I see. So it will be a few of these big ecosystems that are perfectly seamless inside, like the ZKSYNCs, hyperchains, the OP superchain, something from Polygon, maybe something from others, that will be like this big super networks of rollups that are easily talkable to each other. But it's it's much more expensive and, and uh, requires more time and cost and trust assumptions to talk between those different yeah. ecosystems. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there are a lot of bridge projects, like there's Axelar and Hyperlane, who are doing kind of those, that interfacing between these different ecosystems. They will still remain. They will fu fulfill their role. It's the, you know, like they, they will be connecting this completely separate ecosystems. Like you can think of these ecosystems as countries. Mm -hmm. You have a country on maybe on an island, uh, then you have different cities in that country. Each city is a roll up and you have a, connect, a network of high speed railways uh, that connects them. And you can move goods and people like really fast inside. Or maybe maybe it's like even even like you can think of one city, right? You can move things really seamlessly inside. But if you want to go to a uh, different continent, or to a country overseas, you have to take a plane. And the plane is going to be necessarily more expensive. And it will take you longer to get there. So you're not going to be using planes, hopefully, just to get the dinner in some place and then come back. Mm -hmm. Right? But uh, you will be using it when, when you have to move like once a while, something something big. So I think, but in, in planes are still important. We'll still have this big continents, countries connected mm -hmm. via planes. And I see those bridge systems more like this alternative for for airports. I'm trying to figure out what it is in the case of the ZK Sync universe. There's a lot of small roll-ups all on Ethereum. But in this case, like a lot of the value will just be moving in between these chains and not really touching the main chain. Even though yes, the original funds might be locked and held in that smart contract, mm -hmm. it's all kind of happening under the hood. Exactly. Is there a moment where actually like you start minting native tokens on the L2 that aren't on the L1? Of course, you will have a lot of native tokens. Yeah. And then I have a question about like, so in that case, then are you just using the Ethereum blockchain as your data availability space? Because at that point, you're not even using it for the financial, it's not holding the original uh, funds or the original tokens. Yes. All rollups and validiums are going to be using Ethereum for, for a couple of functions. Number one is consensus on the state. So all of them will agree on what is the final state, what, what is the sequence of transactions that have been executed, and that's going to be final. Then you're going to be using Ethereum as the source of security of the validity of your computations. 
like all, all of the ZK systems are eventually verified by every single validator on the Ethereum network mm. and by, by every single full node of the Ethereum network. So this is how you ensure that the math is like, is actually correct. Like someone yeah. needs to verify it and it's going to be Ethereum. So, and in addition to that, rollups are going to use Ethereum for data availability. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the most censorship resistant source of data availability out there. You might have seen Vitalik's recent post about L2s, uh, and he points out to this specifically that for high value transactions, for high value interactions, for example, for, you know, for, for your most valuable tokens, but also for things like your account, private keys, you will be using Ethereum. You want this data to be completely censorship resistant and um, unlosable. But then in addition to that, Ethereum, uh, you know, like Ethereum's data availability uh, bandwidth is going to remain limited, no matter how performant, even if you get to uh, full sharding, it's still going to have some limits and we'll still need systems that can go without limits. And those systems will be Validiums. You will be able to extend it. Some, so some of the hyperchains will be using at least part of their state uh, stored or made available uh, through some external data availability solutions, either managed by them or managed by external providers or managed by decentralized systems like Celestia. Mm -hmm. like there will be some way for them to, to offload uh, data off-chain, growing indefinitely, absorbing arbitrary demand for Ethereum. Wild. You sort of mentioned uh, that these hyperchains can be any system, so you could have kind of like any language you could, it could be a Rust-based system. It could be, I don't know, it, like it, basically the app developers, if there's all these hyperchains with these different language requirements, they can actually deploy in native languages on these hyperchains, not always using Solidity and sort of that EVM basis. That's correct, right? These yes, These hyperchains could be anything. I kind of want to bring the conversation a little bit back to languages to ask you about a language that was created by Matter Labs a long while ago called Zinc, right? Mm -hmm. Is that ever going to make a reappearance, do you think? Like, that was also something around the time of Redshift. You were doing Redshift and you were doing Zinc. Yeah, I'm just curious if you see any further development on that and if you could imagine a hyperchain that actually uses it potentially. Uh, no, we we abandoned uh, Zinc. It, it's it's not going to be developed further. It, it lost its justification. The original reason we were creating Zinc was that we needed a language for non-Turing complete computation. Mm. And since we now can do full Turing complete stuff with ZKVM, with uh, RISC um, or Wasm or you know, like other virtual machines, why would you use something Rust-like if you can just use Rust? With all the tooling yeah. of Rust, with with all, you know, so it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. Do you imagine though, maybe like Matter Labs itself deploying a hyperchain with a different base language? We're ourselves we're focusing on the core protocol, but I think that some hyperchains could be launching with um, languages that are better suited for smart contracts. I can I can think uh, of Move, for example. Yeah. The development from. Um, uh, Facebook Libra, Deem, uh, that was a language that was inspired by Rust, but was actually optimized for making smart contracts more secure. 
and uh, easier to develop. And if that takes off, I can totally imagine a hyperchain using Move mm. or something else entirely. Sure, like existing languages such as Rust are were created for specific purposes, like system programming, making sure that you have um, safe memory space, um, using it for parallelism and so on. All of that does not really matter in the world of smart contracts. You want different elements of the language to support your development, to make it more expressive. So I can totally imagine that in the future we'll see that coming. Interesting. I know you sort of mentioned that when you launched the ZKEVM February 2023, that you were surprised at how quickly it was adopted. Do you have any theories as to why you did see so much adoption now looking back? Oh, we, we still have a lot, not just a lot of adoption. We are the most actively used L2 on Ethereum today. That's if you wild. go to l2bit.info, yeah. uh, just switch to activity. So we're we're number four by TVL, uh, but we're consistently number one by far with uh, 24 million average monthly transactions. Ethereum stands at 30 million and uh, all the other chains are starting with like 16, 14 million and below. So there is a lot of uh, growth happening also in terms of protocols adopting ZK Sync and building new stuff and completely entirely new stuff that, that was not uh, um, done before, uh, going in the direction also of uh, native account abstraction, which we haven't covered yet, but this is, it, it's an important aspect of making blockchains usable by mainstream audience. And we see a lot of projects that are expanding in this mainstream audience space. So we, we see things like Pudgy Penguins uh, launching their uh, NFT campaigns with uh, Walmart corporations where, where millions of users will be able to just scan a QR code and, and get their NFTs and connect the physical world with the uh, with the virtual space, with the metaverse. We see projects uh, like uh, the, the uh, city government of Buenos Aires, Argentina, is using ZK Sync for, uh, for, their, for the ID um, system for the citizens, where they will mm. be using blockchain to, to connect to goods and services and, and, and providers. We're seeing hyperchains being used for interesting mainstream uh, audience bases. So I think what contributed to, to this popularity of ZK Sync is, on the one hand, this focus on technological innovation being future-proof, building systems for the future, like not being not focusing so much on being backwards compatible, but focusing on being future compatible and uh, building for the end consumer in mind. And on the other hand, just this consistency with the mission, with the values, like people know that they can rely on us. People know that when we say decentralization, we actually mean it. It's not a project that was created just you know, like to pump and dump, promote some idea uh, and, and burn it in, in one year. We are here for a very long future. We are really well funded. We are like we as MatterLab, so we will be able to to build everything we need for the final vision, hmm. like to to make this reality of anyone in the world can access Ethereum in an affordable way, fully preserving the properties of Ethereum, and all of that is owned by the uh, the community, all this network governance, the direction in which it's going. It's all controlled not by a single party, by by the broad community. So we, we've been very consistent with this messaging. I think it also contributed to where we are today. Hmm. Do you think there is a moat? This is something I've sort of been curious about with like a lot of the L2 projects. What do you think will keep people on ZK Sync? 
Because if it's EVM compatible, they can deploy elsewhere, right? They can they can do it on Optimism. They could do it on the new ZK EVMs that are coming out. Yeah, what's what's the moat? First of all, I don't care that much about the moat. I care about the mission. And okay. uh, we have a very specific criteria of where the mission is complete and what we need to do for this mission. If you ask me what I think the development is going to be on Ethereum in terms of like how things will will play out, I think that you will see network effects accruing to this big hyperchain, superchain ecosystems. And that is going to be what matters. They will not be bound to individual chains, but to this big ecosystem. But I mean, individual chains will also have their network effects, obviously, because for, for instant composability with um, synchronous transactions and so on. But this access to users and liquidity from one hyperchain to all the other hyperchains, just one click without any capital or trust uh, or security friction uh, is what's going to matter. So you will be measuring not just the TVL or transactions or users, active daily users, all the parameters by which we shine with at, at ZK Sinkara today, you will not be measuring that on individual chains, but in these like, chain ecosystems. That's cool. What's your vision then for the future of this space? One of the big questions, and I kind of hinted at it before, but it was this idea of like, if you have the native assets on the block, on the L2s themselves, like in your vision of the future, is Ethereum still at the center or does it look more like a me like a mesh or a net where like more interconnection and actually value has shifted a little bit further up the L2 stack. Ethereum is definitely going to be at the center as the backbone connecting all the L2s. Mm -hmm. I believe that the internet of value, the eventual form of the Web3 that embraces all forms of value transactions in the world will be in Ethereum L2 cell threes. Okay. Like it will be in, in the in these networks. I don't think they're going to be far outside of Ethereum. You will have a couple of projects outside of Ethereum, a couple of blockchains still doing some things and being used for different purposes. But I believe that the bulk of this world value transactions will be happening on Ethereum networks, hmm. not on layer one itself, as it is Ethereum's vision to use layer one as the, the fundament, the, the connection layer. It's not where the actual end user transactions will happen, except for maybe like some super, super high value transactions. Yeah. In the ZK Credo, there is one term, which is privacy. And it's something when we first met, we talked a lot about. And then I know that there was more of a focus on scaling. Do you see privacy kind of coming back for ZK Sync? Maybe it's always been there. And sorry if I, but like at least in the messaging, it hasn't been as much of a focus. Sure, it's not been at the forefront, but it's it's always been there. If you read the same uh, introductory post uh, about ZK Sync five years ago, one of the key points there is privacy. Yeah, because you can't like <laughs> you can't be using blockchains as Twitter for your bank account. You cannot mm -hmm. be having transactions where everyone in the world can see all the assets you have and all the all the people you interact with. In order to enter mainstream adoption, you have to implement privacy. Uh, but the, the reason we've not been focused on privacy is two things. One, scalability is a prerequisite for privacy. So specifically, like the, the, the way ZK Sync is and ZK Stack is architected is going to make private privacy preserving transactions 
recursive zero knowledge proof verification on these chains super cheap because we will not need to use data availability from Ethereum, even on rollups, to verify zero knowledge proofs. It's, it's all going to be embedded. You will be just paying a fraction of a cent for this verification. Uh, and this paves the path for privacy preserving applications. But the second reason is that uh, we are, as, as an organization, as MetaLabs, uh, is one of the contributors to the ZK stack. And there are now more, and there will be more and more and more organizations, individuals who are contributing to this open source code base of ZK stack. We are embracing Ethereum's philosophy of subtraction. We don't want to become an empire like Google or Facebook or whatnot with like thousands of employees doing like all kinds of different things. We want to focus on one problem, which is the scalability, and do it really, really well. Okay. So what we're building is this internet protocol for this internet of chains. The rest should be done by other people. Like we don't want to, to be building wallets. We don't want to be building privacy uh, extensions. We don't want to be building like individual dApps. Uh, any, any, any kind of DeFi, NFTs, whatever, on top of ZKSync. That is all for others to be built, and we want to support them. Okay, so it's in the credo more as like guidance, but not as something that you're building currently. Like you, you're not going to build the privacy modules or the privacy hyperchains, but someone else could build, I guess, a potentially like hi private hyperchain. I, I don't see it coming for now unless no one really builds it for a long period of time, in which case we will have to intervene. So like eventually I want to see all the points from ZK Credo being built. Okay. Like actually live in, in in being used by millions of people. That is success for us. I believe that so, that other people will do it, but like if no one builds, I don't know, like a fantastic wallet or a point of sale system or or something else. We will have to help this happen. Maybe not in a way that MetaLabs builds it. Maybe in a way that ZKSync ecosystem supports some teams with grants and funds the development and just helps the, the, the systems to, to be created. But eventually, the, all of that is going to be built. I can promise you this. That's cool. Are you also paying attention to some of the kind of co-processor or like this this other way that chains and off-chain computation is happening, not really the traditional L2s. And I'm curious if you, like, if you'll in be interacting with any of that. Uh, sure. I, I think eventually we will see the co-processing being natively seamlessly integrated into, into blockchain systems. So you will be able to just like make a call to, to a smart contract and then execute arbitrary complex function on, on some public data set, plugging in external oracles that will provide access to this data and relying on some networks to the co-processing. That, that is going to be very easy from the programmability point of view. Hmm. Can you imagine building something like that within the ZK stack? Or would you imagine that living somewhere else, being kind of this, the third-party groups that are putting it together? Uh, for, for, for now, we're, we're focusing on making ZK Stack come to life with all the promises of the ZK Stack, with hyperscalability, connection between the hyperchains with hyperbridges, data availability, different data availability modes like Validium, uh, ZK Porter. All of that, of, of that has to work in a very, very uh, smooth way and with uh, fantastic user experience. 
all the extensions, like adding across programs, co-processing, whatever, that is not in the primary focus. The primary focus is to make the foundation work. Meanwhile, so like as, as we're approaching the completion of the foundation, we'll probably have a lot of projects working on those things and we'll be happy to support them and integrate. Cool, cool. Is there actually a foundation for ZK Sync? Like who gives the grants? Is it a treasury that's part of the like governance of the actual network or is it some sort of like existing organization? It must be rooted in the governance system of the chain, if you want. Okay. So like, obviously, as long as, uh, like MetaLabs is a centralized organization, it's just a, it's just a mm-hmm. private company. So we can give grants on our own, at our own discretion to whoever we want. And we are supporting some teams and we're, we're, we're doing some partnerships to uh, accelerate the development. But uh, I think you're asking about the the this network community yeah governance like uh, exactly that like following that question on privacy like how you know i don't really imagine like matter going and funding a privacy project given that it's not in the exact sort of like you just said in the exact space that you're working but yeah is there going to be some like larger treasury pool or something that the gut like the community can actually make decisions on what gets funded uh, yeah, I think that every big protocol has to come up with, with some form of governance that can also be sustainable financially over a long period of time. And this is a big challenge that um, we see a lot of experiments, but we don't see final like um, final system that, that is perfect yet. Yeah. Like no one had, has come up with with anything that I, I believe like is, is yet sustainable. So this is a big research challenge mm-hmm. that we're still in. Interesting. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us all of the updates on ZK Sync. I feel like this was a very overdue episode. Hopefully it won't take another two years for us to get on one of these again. Uh, thank you, Anna. I really enjoyed the questions and it's always fun to, to be here. <laughs> Thanks. I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Jonas, Rachel, and Tanya. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks.